0: This season of Feminist Frequency Radio, we're bringing our feminist media criticism live to video. That's right. If you would like to see us as well as hear us talk about all things cyberpunk, you can do that at youtube.com slash feminist frequency. The audio quality on the videos are not quite as good as you get from our professionally edited podcast, but you do get to see our shining faces. So, you know, your call. We also have live video of all our bonus episodes with our special guests, which are only available to patrons. So get in on that fun at patreon.com femfreak. Now enjoy the show. Hey, y'all, you know, we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare, because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com femfreak. Also fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com slash Femfreak.
1: Obviously, it's like an amazing movie, but it also just on the representational level is like a a feat of humanity.
0: Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada. And this season, our feminist
2: media criticism is family-friendly and fun and fantastical. Well, it is this episode.
0: <laughs> we are fighting robotic children, uh, mutated spies, and an army of henchmen made entirely of thumbs because this is the season of cyberpunk.
1: Mr. Decker, Dr.
0: Eldon Terrell. The new millennium. This is amazing. Will bring a new experience.
2: How do you fit all that in your head anyway?
0: I had to dump a chunk of long-term memory. (laughs) This is
2: going to be fun, Terry. Who
0: is this? Take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose. Mozart's Ghost, the hottest band on the internet. I have so many questions about why this isn't our season of cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. Well,
1: it's my fault, really. I'm sorry. I spoke before I was. was, (laughs) You can cut me out of this.
2: No, I love it. I love it. This like we should be as unhinged during this recording as Robert Rodriguez was during the making of this movie. (laughs) But perfect. That's because if you somehow didn't read the title of the episode, we're discussing the first movie in Robert Rodriguez's Spy Kids franchise which debuted in 2001. Alexa Peña Vega and Daryl Sabara star as the titular kids who have to spring into action when their ex-spy parents, played by Antonio Banderas and Carla Gugino, are captured by the sinister duo, portrayed by Alan Cumming and Tony Shalhoub. The supporting cast includes Cheech Marin, Robert Patrick, and Terry Hatcher, as well as the introduction of Danny Trejo's iconic character, Machete.
0: No one would ever guess that mom and dad are the world's top secret agents. Your parents are international spies, but something's gone wrong.
2: My parents can't be spies. They're not cool enough.
0: The only two people who can save them are
1: their kids.
2: I think it's up to us. You with me.
1: They're on a mission to stop an evil genius. who promise us an army,
0: Mr. Fluke? Rescue their parents. And save the world. Never send a grown up to do a kid's job. Spy Kids. Joining us to discuss this film is a writer, podcaster, critic, and media consultant who's been called a queer champion by The New York Times. They currently host the podcast Food for Thought, T H O T, and Like a Virgin, offering pop culture criticism through a queer trans lens. Their weekly newsletter documents all the things that bring them joy, because in the words of Adrian Marie Brown, joy is important. It's not a guilty pleasure. It is a strategic move towards the future we all need to create.
1: Welcome to the show, Fran Torado. My pleasure. I am so happy that I have forced you all to watch Spy Kids <laughs> on a very okay. serious feminist criticism podcast. This
0: for, yeah, well, <laughs> there's nothing very serious about this, but before we like, okay, Whatever, we're going to ask you questions about your relationship with this movie, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, I would just like to ask, though, like, we had a list of cyberpunk movies, and it was, like, down to the bottoms. And Kat's like, Fran doesn't want to watch any of those. What about all these other ones? And I was like, those aren't cyberpunk movies. And then- there, then you, Kat, you're like, come on, let's just do Spy Kids. There's like technology in it. I was like, okay, whatever. And then I watched the movie and I was like, what were you all thinking? Then, <laughs> so I'm kind of excited that there's this like little tiny like window of something totally different, like squeezed into the middle of this season. But I would like to just vocalize that I don't believe this is a cyberpunk movie as much as just like a, a dope kid's spy movie.
1: Uh-huh. But
0: I'm so here for the like, the nuanced argument of why I'm wrong.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I don't have a nuanced argument as to why you're <laughs> wrong. But I will say that Spy Kids was a better option than whatever the options were said to <laughs> yeah! be. Um, yeah, I, I was like, just like, like, I've never heard of that. Do you want to watch Spy Kids or Mr. and Mrs. Smith or Charlie's Angels or like a movie that I've heard <laughs> yeah. of and ate with popcorn in the theaters when it came out? Because yeah. um, I'm, I'm very, the things to know about me, I'm just I'm just very superficial and I love things <laughs> that are mainstream and are have big box office hits. And Spy Kids specifically was very formative to me. So I thought that um, oh. if I could wedge in my own personal interests um, into what what a, a category I wasn't necessarily totally privy to. Um, I felt like, you know, I definitely yeah. forced it, but, like, here we are.
2: Well, I will agree. This movie is not cyberpunk. I don't think anyone would make that argument. But I think cyberpunk is so much about, like, it's tech plus a very strong aesthetic. And this movie is tech plus a very strong aesthetic. It's maybe not okay. the cyberpunk, like, grungy, like, a post-apocalyptic, dystopian aesthetic, but it is, like, a very... um, I think it's a very, like, clearly defined, stylistic look the whole thing through, and it's, like, definitely
1: a tech movie. I mean... And neither yeah, here nor I'll there, but that. there is more hacking in Spy Kids too, if my memory. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great. Uh, well,
0: I I one you listed off a bunch of um, like spy movies, which I think would be also be a cool series mm-hmm. of like how different. Movies, spy movies have influenced each other but also like i love when people talk about movies that they have some kind of feeling towards especially like the movies that are like biologically imprinted on us at certain phases in our lives so like i'm i'm here for this um i i did not have, have that relationship mm-hmm. watching this movie um but it is one that like I hear about a lot and it comes up a lot. And I just, I'm like, oh, that's just a kid's movie. And I don't think about it. So, so what is your relationship to this movie? Like, why is this, why were you like, yes, this?
1: There, I mean, there's definitely a then and now kind of relationship. Like I will talk about the then, which is that um, I, what this, you said this came out in 2002. 2001. 2001. So I was 10 Um, And I, my family went and saw this in theaters because it was a Latin family. Mm -hmm. And this came at a time where on the representational level, there are just no things being made for Latin people. Like there, as a demographic, we just like representationally are like never seen in media ever, 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 despite the fact that we are and have been for a really long time, the fastest Growing demographic in this country, and I think now currently, or like fast encroaching, the largest marginalized demographic in this country, and um and yet nothing is representing us in media, and so even though not all of the actors in this uh, franchise are Latin, that was not you know the cultural context of this film, and that's not how we criticized movies like this at the time, and so my family was thrilled to see it. And I think we saw it multiple times in theaters and we were there back, Spy Kids 2, we were back day one um, in theaters. And for me, my relationship to it now is like, I watched it, I rewatched it recently. And I was like, oh, like, (laughs) what is this? And why does it feel like a white man, like, did the set design for these people's homes? Um, But, you know, some of it, like, borders on offensive at times. But, like, some of the jokes that, like, I was, like, cringe, I think about how I reacted to them when I was a kid. And I I feel like my family was enthralled by them and thought they Mm. were so funny. And so, you know, I often say, like, just because things are of their time, very other time, which is like, you know, a euphemism for very dated now um, doesn't mean that it doesn't have cultural importance or merit, or that wasn't a good cultural object for that, that year that it came out. So that's kind of the the dichotomy there.
0: Yeah. I feel like one of the things that was really remarkable to me was how many Latinx actors were in it, Yeah, uh, how like that was kind of a part of the fabric or like as much as a part of the fabric as it could be for a mainstream kids movie at the time. Like this is one of those things that I'm, I'm kind of surprised was made the way it was made, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. with all of the problems that were, you know, that I'm sure we'll get into, but that just the sheer fact that it had such a huge, um, Latinx cast and like it, they weren't pretending to not be. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: I have so many, like, complicated i have a very complicated relationship to my own like mexican-american identity and being from a family where like there are clear lines around like who falls under like the Huera side of things and who is like more culturally mexican or culturally american and um edward james almost has a great spe- speech about this in the movie selena um so like re i mean and watching this now when i Right now, I was like, Ugh, it's this is so rude that only one of the main family members yeah. <laughs> is actually Latina. Alexa Peña Vega is, I think, half Colombian. Um, yeah. But then I did want to at least reference um, Robert Rodriguez's quotation about that he gave to the New York Times. Uh, they did this list. I found this in a list that the New York Times did that was like 20 very important movies to watch that have Latin casts. And like 18 of them were like documentaries about how fucking hard (laughs) something is. And like two of them were like movies where people are experiencing like life and love and happiness. So um, Robert Urjiga said, when El Mariachi won Sundance, the idea of a Mexican-American filmmaker was suddenly more embraced by the industry. I found I now had the opportunity to hire Latinos both in front and behind the camera, many of them for the first time. Um, I'm just skipping ahead where he goes to make Spy Kids and the studio says, This is a terrific story, but why risk appealing only to a smaller audience by making the family Hispanic? Why don't you just make them American? I said they are American. In fact, they're all based and named after my family. And even my uncle Gregorio actually is a special agent in the FBI. There was still resistance. And since there was literally no other Latinx movie in existence that I could point to as a model showing how this could work, I finally argued... You don't have to be british to enjoy james bond the more specific you make the characters the more universal they become somehow that convinced them and i do think like it's this is a something that i think is probably common to certainly like asian audiences and latin audiences which is like the broad brush that everyone gets painted with where like i was curious i i feel like desperado came out when i was a kid and I was like, oh, so Antonio Banderas, is is he speaking Spanish in this movie? And is he supposed to be believably Mexican? Because that seems wild to me that like he a Spanish actor, unless they are doing really good accent work, would be perceived as anything other than Spanish when they're actually speaking in the language. But in English language movies, that's not a problem because everyone's mm-hmm. just like, oh, but it's Antonio Banderas. He's whatever. He's from whatever country you tell me he's from. <laughs> And it's like this thing that, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have had a problem with in 2001. So that's part of like watching back and trying to parse like, what did it mean versus what am I trying to make it mean right now?
1: Yeah, the nuances of what was Hispanic and what was Latino just did not really exist um, as much as they do now. And even now, I still feel like people are very quick to conflate the two or not really understand why it's weird that Javier Bardem is playing Desi Arnaz or whatever you know what i mean like things i think we get into that all the time but like at the end of the day Antonio Banderas is an actor that is beloved by latin people mm-hmm. and so even though latin people know that he's not latin it's like it kind of it, it, i think he at least was kind of earned um right. even if it's not right but like yeah i mean you're you're saying a lot of things that are very resonant to me as well like I think a lot about that Selena quote, the nida aquía, nida ya. what it means to exist in two places and to feel like you are not Mexican enough or to feel like you're not American enough. And I'm Mexican and Puerto Rican. And so, I don't know. I feel like I grew up a mishmash of things and confused about my identity in very American culture and in a very white suburban culture. And um, something like Spy Kids really awoke me to the bridge between cultures. I think Selena does that too. I think Vida does that. Mm. I think there are a lot of amazing cultural entities that are talk about that being on the cusp of, of two worlds. And I think that metaphorizing it with spy, with spy network to, to, to feel like yeah. you have access to a world of, like, secret agents and superpowers and, like, all this different stuff because you belong to this Latino legacy, I think is so amazing, you know? Like, I, I think that that, as a kid, was so empowering. And it, it's, it's nothing short of radical to not just have a Latin family on screen, but to have that Latin family be essentially superheroes, like yeah. spies, you know?
0: Can I, sorry, before we dive into that, which I think is great, I just want to clarify that Antonio Banderas is Spanish for Mm -hmm. folks who are like from Spain, Spanish for folks who don't know. And so is Javier Bardem, I believe. Yes. And often get cast as like Latinx characters. So just in case, like I also, I just looked it up because I was like, I think so, but I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I want to make sure I'm like accurate. I've always found it very frustrating. I've always found it very frustrating because it's like, Um, well they have kind of an accent so they can pretend to be Brown and like, that's okay. And I, yeah. So anyways, in case anyone else was curious (laughs) and that's that, like, that's part of the issue here. Right.
2: And there's so much like complexity, like even sometimes when I feel like I'm being really pedantic about it because I'm trying to like, like, am I be, am I doing the right thing by being pedantic or am I like doing the same kind of erasure of like, you know, when you have so many countries that were uh, impacted by like colonization and there's so many different indigenous communities and there's like a, a huge blend of like, like people in my family are from Nueva Italia. And like, there's a total, there's like so much going on where it's like, I don't necessarily want to, I certainly don't want to say like who is or isn't like a brown person or a person of color. There are plenty of people who are many generations Mexican who are blonde haired, blue eyed, but like that, just saying somebody who's from Western Europe is like a representative of, you know, the millions of people who are like yearning to be seen
0: on, on, in movies and TV. It's, it is frustrating. And and I think that like a, a big key to that, as you're talking about like Western Europe, the west as in like colonizers like you know like there is a big difference in terms of like this isn't just about aesthetics right it's mm-hmm. about like the the class and the like the global position that folks are live in within their countries and the strata's within those countries and all of that and like so yeah mm-hmm. i i th- thank you for sharing that like i think it's it's such a it's so complicated um to to navigate like, well, can you have someone from Guatemala play a Mexican? Is that okay? Right. (laughs) Right? Um, In that, like, can you have a French-Canadian? I mean, this is different because this isn't race, but like a French-Canadian play like a French person? Like, is it just language? Like, the answer is, no, when it comes to the complications of race and class and mm-hmm. and all of that mixed in so. right
1: and latini i mean like um, latini is an ethnicity not a race you know and i think the fact that you know there can be white mexicans or that there can be black and brown people from spain is also like additionally confusing to all of this you know what i mean yeah. and i and, i think that like all of it you know it's it's just something that should be common knowledge But, like, as Americans, we still can't really follow a lot of the nuances of Latinidad. And even Latinos, even Latinos don't really get it right all the time, you know?
0: I don't know why I just use the French language as an example when I'm, like, uh, Middle East. Like, it frustrates me to no end when I'm, like, that was shot in Morocco and it's very clearly (laughs) Morocco. But now you're saying it's Syria. And I'm, like, but I know, like, (laughs) like, these are different, like completely different dialects, completely different uh, like uh, experiences, like North African Arab versus Middle Eastern Arab. And then all of that. So like same, like I think the Middle Eastern and, and Mina in general is very similar in terms of there's a uniqueness, but there's a very similarity, similarness to the fact that we just like lump all of these categories of people together and then repackage them and be like, Hollywood repackages them and they're like, well, aren't you happy that you have some representation? Mm-hmm. And Asian actors have been going through this a,
2: a lot. Too. Exactly. Like, I was thinking that, um, that one, one of my freakouts from a couple episodes ago was, um, the new father of the bride movie. Mm. And like, just seeing how it was a marriage between a Mexican family and a Cuban family. I was like, already I'm seeing stuff that I've probably never seen in a movie. Um, I, I think thinking about like Asian actors, I was thinking of the show Heroes, which I remember that was probably the first time that that, like came up a lot. And why am I bringing it but to Heroes is because I'm bringing you to my first time going to Comic-Con in San Diego, 2007. And Robert Rodriguez was doing something for I'm going to say a Grindhouse movie, something like that. And my friend, we got to like meet him in like this thing. And I didn't really know who he was. Like I knew his name. My friend was like, I love Spy Kids. And he was (laughs) geeked. He was so happy that somebody was coming up to the, like, Comic-Con marketing activation for, like, the Quentin Tarantino Grindhouse movie and was just, like, wanted to talk about Spy Kids. And I think that's actually the first time I watched this movie. So it would have been, like, I was in my 20s. You know, I wasn't a kid, but it also... um so this was my second time watching this and I've had so much fun watching it. Like there's, it's very stupid. Like there's a lot of it where I'm like, oh, this is very goofball. But like, that's, I thought it was really fun. Anita, you probably hadn't watched it before. So you were going into it like,
0: I both I hadn't what. watched it. And I also watched it on a day where I was extremely tired and didn't get enough sleep and was dealing with two monstrous dogs. So like the the environment in which I watched it in also was not uh, helping matters. But I want to I want to hear from both you and Fran, like what like get us into the, the movie, like what draws you to it? What are the things that like actually make you be like, yes, because I will say um, that. It's got such a jazzy intro, right? Like I was like, I was like, I, I was like sucked in pretty quickly and then was very quickly like, oh, it's, I can't, this is a lot of this, you know, I have things around kids' movies. I have a hard time with Well,
2: I want us to talk more about that, but, but Fran, like bring us to, I'm curious, not only like, do you have siblings? Are you all experiencing it in the same way? Are your parents like, this is stupidness for kids, but there were calaveras on the wedding cake. So like, that's nice. Like Tell me about your experience and, like, your family going to see this in the theaters.
1: I have a little sister, and so I am Alexa Vega, and my sister is Junie, (laughs) and we really, really have that relationship. And, you know, I agree with you, Anita. It was just, like, it's the engine of the film is so strong. Even upon rewatch, I was just, like, in already. Like, I was like, this movie really does slap, you know? Um, (laughs) But I, I think the thing, like, when I think about, like, how we would talk about it growing up, my family would just kind of talk about it. Like, obviously it's like an amazing movie, but it also just on the representational level is like a, a feat of humanity. Like it's it's insane that this movie was made with a Latin family at the helm um, and unprecedented. And so I just feel like um, it's uh, unfortunately rare these days when something that... Uh, Gets a lot of headlines and is championing diversity or representation or like these are the like this is like why it's so important because it's so diverse or whatever. Um, it's it's uh, those things are not always good. <laughs> you Ooh. know, like they like they're important. Yes. You know, like what, they- you
0: don't think a sex in the city reboot is important.
1: <laughs> Girl. <laughs> we could do a whole other 45 minutes about and just like that don't even get me started. Um,
0: <laughs> yes, we could. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've
1: already said like 4,000 words worth of, of and just like that discourse uh, to my agent because I'm like writing about it in my book. I'm writing a book about representation. Oh, okay. um, nice. But like that, I think that and just like that is a perfect example of um, what my friend Joe Osmondson calls woke whack-a-mole, um, where they're <laughs> yes. just trying to hit every corner of, marginalized audiences and and kind of justice-oriented culture and and failing because they forgot that they need to tell a good story too.
2: Well, if you ever do a comedy concert about this topic, I will be first in line for that thing that definitely exists.
1: I will do it, and I will be billed as Chabias. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this, like, I think... When I watched this in my 20s and I was like, yeah, it's for kids. So I like just didn't really I didn't really watch it. I was just like, oh, OK, I want to know what Spy Kids is like. I see they're checking the boxes of what I think this movie is. So I was watching it more thoroughly this time. And um, I, the aesthetic is like not for me. Those creatures are <laughs> upsetting.
1: Disgusting. Oh,
2: to, to <laughs> um, Like and like my partner's like a cartoonist so I end up watching a lot of like I I and I used to work in animation like I, I do enjoy watching media for all ages but there are some times where if the aesthetic is wrong I'm like I can't even look at that I don't want to see it it's offensive to my eyes and I'm 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 done like I can't find the story so there are moments where I was like I don't want to see those like the pinched face creature was my least favorite um but then watching it now for this podcast, A, I was like, I appreciate that in a kids movie all the adults are stone-cold foxes. Yeah. Like, I... Alan Cumming is, like, the best he's ever looked. Mm. Um, Carla Gugino, only 30 when she made this movie, which kind of bums me out because, like, that's too young to have these, like, teenage children and have already retired from being a spy, but just looked incredible. Um, But also I was thinking about, like, And I don't think this was what he was going for when he made this movie. I think he wanted to make an action, fun movie that was the type of thing he wanted to see as a kid or that he wanted his whole family to go to. But the fact that it is about spies, I think, is even a little bit subversive. Mm. Like the fact that Cheech Marin and Antonio Banderas like put a mustache on when they're going incognito (laughs) and iconic. it's, like, amazing. And, like, it makes me think about that, just the notion, too, of, like, of passing and, like, trying to be involved in places where you maybe are or aren't supposed to be. And that is what being a spy is. is like, ingratiating yourself. And it, it doesn't matter, like, what their spy job is, I guess. Like, they're creating tiny brains for something, for the OSS. I don't know. Um... But that notion that like this family can find themselves anywhere, I think, is really something about like the immigrant experience and the Latin experience and like who gets to be considered as American or who gets to be considered as white, who, you know, as we're inventing the definition of these things and reinventing those definitions all the time, um, I was like, it's kind of. I, I don't know. That's what I saw in my watch of this now. And then at the end, like that it's the kids and they're like, your kids are even better at it than you are. So they're going to be the spies now. Um, but maybe I'll go watch Spy Kids 2 and it'll like completely re- remove all of that. <laughs> like, deeper Spy reading. Kids 2
1: somehow is even more off the rails than <laughs> the original. I, but it's actually, I think, a really good sequel. Um, okay, so similarly, I also was watching this and I was like, Antonio Banderas, DILF. (laughs) Alan Cumming, DILF, period. Actually, like, I would say my second reaction was just, like, how magnanimous and um, irreplicable Alan Cumming is as a performer. Like, he's, like, so constantly, like, uh, on a board of role models for me. The the level of pro, pro... He's so prolific in his, like... Um, in his life so far and continues to do so many different projects, work in so many different mediums, work with so many different kinds of budgets to do the biggest and the smallest things in addition to, like, being a queer bar owner and, like, funding other people's, like, art projects and, like, investing in young queer artists and, like, all this different stuff. Like, he's so amazing. And I I love the way that his zaniness lent itself to, you know, Robert Rodriguez's kind of a very weird approach to what is a completely bizarre movie.
0: As a total aside, I once dragged Carolyn, our former podcast co-host, out to Davis, California, because Alan Cumming was doing like this like stage performance where he just like sang songs and told stories and it was
1: fucking magical.
0: Like it was, it was really good. That
1: man has good stories. Every time I've ever been with him, even if I, even if I'm like at a, we're at a pretty for five minutes, that man will tell you the longest story about the time <laughs> he went to like, you know, a, a nude beach with Ian McKellen or whatever. Um huh. it, it, like he's just like always 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 and uh, he's an actor's actor. Like everyone loves him, you know. Um but I will say also as an aside that um it, I don't know if any of y'all have had the 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 fortune of hearing Alan Cumming DJ. He is a wackadoodle DJ. I think the <laughs> one time I heard him DJ, the the only the thing that I remember was that he played I just can't a remix of I just can't wait to be king from The Lion King. Um, But I have a friend who said one time he went to an Alan Cumming gig and he did a remix of Floop is a Madman, help us, save us. (laughs) Shut (laughs) up. Yes! Uh, Which is a bop, by the way. A total bop.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Wow.
2: I have to say, like, the acting in this movie, everyone is kind of in their own movie, but Mm -hmm. they're all, like, killing it for whatever movie they're in. So I was like... (laughs) You know, like, Terry Hatcher as Angelica's doll from Rugrats was wild, but she was just like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I'm fresh out of, like, Lois and Clark or whatever. Tony Shalhoub, he's, like, so straight and serious, and mm. he, you, it has to be. Like, you couldn't have, like, somebody wearing that prosthetic head thing at the end and not fully committing to the bit and he's just there and the kids i mean i am curious to talk about like children's media and how we hold it to a different standard sometimes like i don't think we should i think children's media can be amazing and it can be terrible but it shouldn't just be like "eh, it's for kids so who cares if it's bad like um, but it also shouldn't be like, well, it's for kids, so it can't be that good. Um, however, I don't often love child performers <laughs> um, like I don't ever. I, and I'm someone who likes kids like I am not anti kid. I don't want to hear a child sing. That's an almost never for me. It's just like something about it is upsetting. I don't <laughs> think they should be singing. I just feel like that's if you want to sing amongst yourselves, that's great. Um But these kids, I thought, were really good because they're not like pageant performers. They're there to be like a brother and sister, and they're kind of teasing each other in a way that's believable. They're cute and precocious, but they're not like constantly like vamping to the camera, which I feel like a lot of child actors do. Um, So, yeah, love it for them.
0: (laughs) I thought they were fine, (laughs) you know, whatever they're, they're fine. But, um, I, I I don't know anyone who likes child actors. Like they're excruciating and painful, but I will say that I think there is over the last like five to seven years, like an increase in the quality of child actors, like significantly where like, I'll be watching a movie and be like, Holy fuck. How is this kid that amazing. And then I worry about them, yeah. you know, <laughs> then I really worry. I'm like, how are you this good? What is your life? Like, are you going to be ruined by the time you are a teenager or whatever? But I think that there is a, um, an increase, like, I'm not as horrified by child actors because I think we're like, I don't know, directors are figuring out how to work with them in ways that really bring out, um, real, really good performances, and I guess, but
2: best case scenario, they marry Megan Trainer.
1: I was gonna say, okay, I yeah. It must be noted that Daryl Savara's greatest achievement, aside from being in the Spy Kids franchise, is marrying Megan Trainer, and the fact that they have two toilets sitting next to each other in the bathroom so that they can poop next to each other.
0: Do they live in Sweden because there is a restaurant in Stockholm that has one bathroom stall? And it has two toilets in it. And I every time I go there, I'm like, what in the yeah. fuck? And like I've asked people. They live at that restaurant.
1: Like, oh. They live at that <laughs> restaurant.
0: <laughs> it's a really good restaurant. I like it a lot. But it's just uh that's bizarre. Yeah.
1: So. Child acting really is kind of its, or at least for a while, was like its own genre. You know, like it, it's like, you know, they don't have to be good, they just have to have star quality. And I think mm. that. The Macaulay Culkins uh, uh, of the world, you know, transcend because they're they they become stars, even though Macaulay Culkin wasn't like an amazing actor. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, you could argue, but like as we get into like what is now prestige child acting, and we get right. the Qu- Janae Wallaces, Abigail Breslin—is that her name? Abigail yeah. Breslin. Um, like all these all these like kids that are nominated for Oscars or whatever. Like I, I I'm happy to see that too, but I do like just corny, bad child acting. And I say that as someone who finds children on and off screen annoying. <laughs>
0: uh, I was at a, the Angel City football game last, a couple nights ago and there was a kid sitting behind me who would not stop fucking talking. Like literally, oh, look how fast they kick the ball. Wow, the ball goes really fast. Wow, one headbutt, two headbutt, three head, whoa, four headbutt. When I play soccer, I do it like this and I was like, I'm gonna murder this child, like I just why do why are children allowed in public or in the world at all in any way, which to be fair, it is really cute to see all the kids like come out and support like you know live sports and you know whatever, especially like women's soccer, but they like maybe there should just be like an adults only section thing, <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> um okay, so so i one of the things that I was really like kind of clued into at the beginning of this movie is some like really minor representation stuff that like, again, feels very of its time. And mm-hmm. like, I I, I always kind of, I don't like saying that because I'm like, it's of its time. It was still fucked up. You know, like right. sometimes sometimes people will be like, well, you know, the racism in the movies from the 1960s was like of its time and expected. And you're like, but it was still racist, mm-hmm. like just because it was like, quote unquote, socially accepted by a particular audience doesn't mean that it wasn't a problem. So anyways, but there's all these like little minor gendered things between the parents. So, um, for example, like she has a makeup desk and he mm. has a work desk, oh my you God. know, um, which Whatever, like the the production design is adorable and interesting, but like that tied into the fact that like she's jealous of the other hot secret agent. Like he's keeping secrets from her. Like Mm -hmm. there's just all this like really normative gendered relationship bullshit, which I could imagine the thinking is like, we need to make them feel like a real family. So like, let's dig into these tropes so that we can do that. And like they're normal people too but I I was just like eye rolling the whole time being like, did we, that was unnecessary that we didn't need any of that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It was a little, it was a little flattening. I feel like um, there, I think there are a lot of like kind of stereotypy things that, you know, at the time you're like, I get why this is funny. And I feel like I remembered laughing at this. Like, actually there's a moment in Spy Kids 2 where, um, they have to like say their names into some spyware in mm. order to unlock something, and these kids have like each have like seventeen names. It's like Isabel Rodriguez, Rodriguez yeah. Gabriel. you know what I mean? And it's like it's like actually like I remember my dad like laughing his ass off to that joke because it plays into a stereotype that is actually really funny about Latin people, which is that sometimes we have seventeen names. But like watching it, that it. Currently, like where I am now, I was like, I was like, like what? Like okay, like you know what I mean? Like I think there are things like that where you know it's because it's of its time. You're like, it's it's sometimes it's difficult to enjoy now. Um, But I think that when things are just entertaining, sometimes you know problematic shit transcends, if I will.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's yeah, or or you note it and move on, right? Like that's that's like the best you're gonna, yeah. It's
2: it's hard to know sometimes like when are we in on the joke versus like when are people being like left out of this um mm-hmm. so like when machete has dinner with the kids and he's got a complete like nose to like nose to tail like pig meal as part of that i was like yeah like i know that i grew up eating like hooves and Electron, a lot of yeah. people didn't and like That I think that's always something, like, I want to push back against people, um, especially as somebody who's, like, white and Mexican, where I can say, like, guess what? It's not an abnormal thing to, like, eat all of the parts of an animal. Um, But then, like, watching that scene, I was like, I don't know if this joke is being made at the expense of people who might actually, like... Because he has, like, the full pig head on a plate and he's got, like, a bowl of intestines that just, like, sloshes out. And I was like, that's not... I don't know. Like, are we supposed to be laughing with these people or at these people? That's unclear. Um, also, an absolutely unnecessary joke for, <laughs> Joke for me, um, visual joke, was the Thumb Thumbs had a sexy nurse... That was like made of like fingers and had like a red n- uh, fingernail and was like skinny and had a little nurse's outfit. And I was like, they had to spend time animating this sexy thumb thumb. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't want to see it.
0: Oh my like, gosh. We made a whole episode of Tropes versus Women in Video Games <laughs> about gendered signifiers. <laughs> Please reference that in the future of
2: thumb thumb development.
1: <laughs>
2: you know what I'm going to be for Halloween? I'm going to be the sexy thumb
0: thumb. <laughs> God,
1: that would be an incredible um, costume.
0: I do want to make sure that we talk a little bit about like the aesthetic of this world though, because it is so specific and like the tech and like how, like. I kept thinking, like, how fun this would be for a kid to watch, Mm -hmm. you know, to be like, I can be a spy too, right? And I can have a car that turns into a submarine and, like, I'm, like, I can figure it out, right? I can can unlock the secret button thing that does whatever physio electric imaging, (laughs) blah, 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 right? Yeah, like, this seems like a movie that's
2: made for make-believe. Like, not only... It has that kind of PB's Playhouse, like, visual style once they get to Floop, Floop, Floogles, F- Floopy Floops, guys. Floogies. Floops, <laughs> Floogies. Floops, Flooglies. Floops, Flooglies. Um, but that, like, the stuff like bubble gum stuck to your shoe and little um grappling hooks. I was like, this is for kids to like play in their backyard and pretend that they're in this movie. There is something really accessible about it because it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not about, it's not like guns and, and tanks. I mean, there are cool vehicles, but it's just like, um, it's fighting in a way that I think is really based in play. So that was, yeah, it was like, also I think he's a good action director right like that's what he's known for so even when you had like the kids fighting against themselves in the playground um I was like yeah this looks good like this looks good not just for a 2001 movie like you could have easily had a less skilled director like making this making all of these like sh- the army of children like it could have just very easily gone into nightmare territory and for me it was just the character design
1: yeah I I definitely um I I, it was it's a lot of wish fulfillment right like that moment where they put the brick in the microwave and it turns into McDonald's or whatever like that is every kid I just remember being a kid and being like like if only that existed in real life you know what I mean like um I yeah I think that there's something really enticing and indulgent about about the aesthetic. Um something that I noticed at least in the first 15 minutes of the film where you can see the family's house was how egregiously it was decorated. It looked like a it looked like a like everything was bought from world market first of all. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> it was giving like pueblo ass like motel in New Mexico. <laughs> Like there was, there was a there was an acoustic guitar mounted on the wall. I was like, what the (laughs) fuck is going on? Like, where, where am I? Um, I think that honestly, it's representative of something that we're kind of getting at, which is like, because we are not privy to who makes some of these decisions, because not all of these decisions are Roberts, right? Like he has to approve them. Yeah. But like, they're not all his ideas. It's like a lot of these ideas or these decisions are probably formulated by like white people. And I think that sometimes you can smell through that a little bit.
0: Well, that's interesting because in that quote that you read at the top cat, he talks about having a Latinx folks both in front of and behind the scenes. And that um, is interesting to me because we, you know, spent a lot of time publicly, really pushing for representation on camera. And there wasn't as much conversation about who's behind the camera, who's making things. And that conversation is really, I think, skyrocketing over the last several years of really pushing, like, who gets access to creative works, vision onset, set, et cetera. And so I am actually really curious, like, how much of that cast was from Latinx communities? How much of it was like, you know, was it you know, he hired two guys that he knew and it was like right. behind the scenes. We got whatever, like, well, I'm really curious, you know? And I think it would be a shame if the production designer wasn't Latinx, right? And that's yeah. probably what you're seeing of them being like, well, you could find that house very easily in LA, that like architecture, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that it's like feels um rooted in any yeah. kind of authenticity to what they were trying to do. Like, I would almost rather them be in just a house. Yeah. You know, like I would yeah. just
2: live, you know- I was just reading about like Minari and how the editor was a spoke Korean fluently because if he had had, if they had hired an editor who had to work with a translator, you couldn't have gotten a good edit on that no, movie. No, no um, way. A legendary Effie Brown on Project Greenlight when Matt Damon says, that's not where diversity happens, diversity happens in the casting. And she just looks at him <laughs> with the most withering. Uh, glare, But I think that like that is that is what a lot of people in decision making place uh, positions believe or mm-hmm. believed. And maybe you're starting to see that that's not it's not believable uh, to the
1: audience.
0: All right. Question before we wrap up. Should I watch Spy Kids 2?
1: It is. I mean, definitely watch it stoned. That's what I'll say. Mm,
0: OK, that's doable. It is.
1: Perfect. I I watched it stoned bonissimo absolutely <laughs> sublime like uh, 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 truly such a trip nonstop fun um and yeah I, I think it's a very it's one of those rare very good sequels don't watch Spy Kids 3D it'll make you barf
2: <laughs> I, I, great
0: and <laughs> and I wasn't even
2: considering it <laughs> don't watch Shark Boy and Lava Girl which is like the <laughs> low budge like remake that he's make, doing now for Netflix yeah. or something oh I
1: didn't know that
0: I don't know. Interesting. I
2: just know it looks All right.
0: bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, y'all. We'll be right back to share some freakouts.
2: If you are enjoying our show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Your monthly or annual tax deductible gift helps us keep the show running and on the air. By becoming a patron, you're supporting independent feminist media and a nonprofit that's working to end abuse in the games industry. Plus, patrons get a special bonus alongside each episode of the podcast. Of course, we know that not everyone has the means to financially support the show. So just taking a moment to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show can help new listeners find us. We appreciate your support in whatever way you can provide it. Now, back to the show.
0: Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us recently. Fran, how how are your feelings? What are you feeling feelings about?
1: Um, I would say the freshest on my mind is how good Mrs. Marvel was. Yeah. Um, Miss Miss Marvel, forgive me. Um, it's on Disney Plus. It's this amazing Marvel series about a Pakistani girl who just basically comes across a mystical bangle that has an ancestral magic that connects her to a class of superheroes um, called the Djinn. And it's like, I just can't believe that Marvel made it. Like I, I just, I, I, I'm every single time I'm watching it, I'm like, I would never in a million years would think that we would see not just Pakistani characters, but so many different kinds of Pakistani characters, so many different kinds of Desi identities, so many different kinds of, you know, immigrant experiences, like, in one show. Um, I think that the failure of representation is often a lack of multiplicity of perspective and the ways that when we put things to screen, we have no choice but to flatten them or no choice but to tell the single story. And um, it just is so good. Um, And episode five particularly, which was written by my friend Fatih Oscar, was about partition. Mm. And it's like, Marvel is writing about partition and centering what is a cultural touchpoint and extremely painful history uh, that most people don't know about. Like, I was just talking about, or rather, I was talking about this on my other podcast, Like a Virgin, about how Marvel is you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, like Nazi obsessed, right? Like there are Mm -hmm. a lot of series and comic books about defeating Nazis and, um, you know, overcoming genocide and all these different things. And it's very flattening. It's like Nazis are bad and superheroes are good and we're going to kill the Nazis and then everything's over, you know? And I was worried that it would get the same kind of superhero treatment. And the way they tell the story of Partition is just so unique and beautiful and romantic and, and, and heartbreaking. And, um, yeah, I just get emotional talking about it. So everyone should watch Miss Marvel if you haven't already. Um, it's all out.
0: Yeah. So i watched the first episode of it. Um, and I was, I, I loved the aesthetic. I thought they did such a great job with it visually. And I remember when the comics came out, who, um, Uh, G. Willow Wilson wrote them and was really excited that, like, this existed. It was a very big deal. It was a part of the, like, kind of rebooting that sort of happened in, I don't know, a little while ago in the comic world where they actually, like, tried to center more women and more people of color in the stories. And so I, I haven't watched much of it, but I'm glad to hear that they didn't, like, fuck it up for the show. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, like I, I had a feeling that they were going to go there because they're running out of material. And like, that also is a sort of cynical take on why it was made. But like, they're really pulling from everything. And like, I'm glad they pulled from that iteration of this to be able to tell that story. And like, how exciting for all of those actors and like behind the scenes folks who get an opportunity to work on
1: this. It's stunning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh Kat, what do you got?
2: Um, I realize... Why maybe I'm not a great media critic is, like, how much of my experience (laughs) of watching movies and TV is based on, like, okay, were we're, were there a lot of hot people in this (laughs) show or movie? And I've always been like that. Or that makes
0: you a great
1: critic. I agree. I agree.
2: I mean, like, I was, like, the most, like, chaste inexperienced like child and I was watching stuff like thinking about like I would kiss this one and that one and this one and that one and like that has just always been there so like I was like literally I feel like a perv saying this but like that's one of the things I like about Ms. Marvel she's got like all these cuties around and she's like she's like oh this is my friend who likes me I can have him on the hook oh here's this new guy with an (laughs) accent she goes to visit her grandma and like immediately there's like a hot guy and I was like Yes, like, this is the teen dream that I would have had as, like, a teenage girl. So I think about, oh, if I was watching this, I'd be like, not only does she get to be a superhero, but there are, like, hunks aplenty. Yeah, suitors,
1: (laughs) so many suitors.
2: (laughs) Yes, like, good for her. (laughs) So, um, unfortunately, that's why I can't tell if I actually like the show The Bear or if I just want to boink everyone on it because (laughs) it's, like... Everyone is so hot on so, this show. So okay, the bear is a good show. I think I'm like firmly gonna say that. Um, I would like everyone
0: to go back and reference my freak out that I did about the bear,
2: because <laughs> it seems like mostly the same.
0: <laughs> I just say, just like I is to set it up and then Kat can talk about how hot everyone is in it. Cause it, I fucking love this show. Here's the thing.
2: I am like Being on this podcast, I've gotten to talk a lot on the Feminist Frequency podcast about machismo and Mm -hmm. how, like, drawn to it I am and how I am so attracted to movies and characters where I'm like, I can't tell if I want to be around that person, if I want to be that person, but there is just something so testosterone-fueled about them that is foreign to me and is also, like, captivating, right? So my current, like macho that I'm obsessed with is John Bernthal. So when he showed up in the last episode I watched of The Bear and it was a bit of a Punisher reunion, I was thrilled. I just feel like I always want to see, like, the guy who looks like his nose has been broken five times.
1: Same. And it's Shovel great. face.
0: Yes. I, I love
1: like, a shovel face. Javier Bardem, Owen Wilson, yeah. people that look like they got hit in the face with a shovel. I see. I've never,
0: hot. ever ever understood the Owen Wilson attra- Yeah, I, I was going to say Owen Wilson does not for me. But. Yeah, Adam I Driver met someone years ago who was so obsessed with Owen Wilson and I just couldn't understand
1: it. Adam Driver kind of has that face. A little bit too. Huh? Adam Driver's... These are all
0: people that I'm not attracted to at all.
1: Adam Driver's top five for me. If not number mm. one, unfortunately. Um, I hate to say it.
2: Yeah, Adam Driver He's a good actor. looks so much to me like a Muppet that I don't see... See it, but like <laughs> I don't not see it. I don't know. That's the thing. Like, so anyway, I'm watching this. I've never worked in a in a kitchen like that. So a lot of people I know are watching it are like, I am so stressed out. I can't keep watching this. I'm having too many kitchen like oh yeah. Flashbacks. A lot.
0: A lot of folks are like who have worked in kitchens or working kitchens are like suffering like PTSD from watching this show. Like yeah. just that's how realistic it is to a lot of folks
2: but if i take just one real moment instead of just being horny for everyone on television um is to say that there's a through line of this character's going to alan on and i actually was like pretty surprised to see that i feel like alan like people you see aa in stuff um but there's like a lot of 12-step um self-help support groups and i feel like it's an easy access point to like mental health services that a lot of people Mm. don't consider um and it's just like kind of nice to see that even your like kind of tough or um closed off characters might actually pursue that so i was like oh that is really nice to see it's not Mm -hmm. just like something that it's something our hero would do and our hero in this show is um the kid from Shameless. I don't know. He's <laughs> he's grown up now and he's he bra- he's
0: brand new to me on this show. I yeah. never watched Shameless. Me he did he went fantastic, though. Love the show. I'm going to cat doesn't know this, but I'm going to try to convince cat to do a whole series of sh- episodes about food shows and movies, TVD <laughs> oh. in the future. All right. What are you freaking out about? Yeah. So I, okay. Y'all, uh, might remember that I'm like slowly getting into romance novels and like dipping my toe into this arena with the help of Ebony and some other friends. Uh, so speaking of horny, this is very like, you know, good transition. Um, so yeah, I've read a few I, that I've been really into and I'm like, damn, this is like some sexy shit. Like I can't put this down. And like the tension building, like what a great, um, like the really good writers are really good at like building and ramping the tension so that by the time you get to like intimacy, you're like, oh, fucking finally, this is the sexiest thing I've ever seen. Um, so I am in the middle of reading a book called A Lady for a Duke by Alexis Hall, which was one that was recommended. Um, and this book, so, okay, I'm excited about the book. I'm not a huge fan of like Victorian era media in Mm -hmm. general. So like that part of this is a little like, okay, whatever. I feel like there's a lot of like consistency, which I appreciate in the way that they talk and the language being what I assume is language from the time period and all of that. Like, you know, sometimes you'll watch Victorian stuff and then they like make a contemporary joke and you're like, this, what the fuck are you doing? Or like they kind of speak in slang. So there's like the consistency, the writing is really lovely. But I think what's so special about this book is that it's actually, um, about a trans woman who fakes her own death uh, and then comes back as to live as a woman. Mm. And only two people know that. And she loses like all of her inheritance, all of her wealth, all of her like stature, like everything so that she could like live it as her like true identity. Um, and so she's living this life or whatever. And then she is forced to confront her like bestest all time friend, um, and like pretend that she doesn't know him and and introduces herself to him as who she lives as now. Mm. Um, and it's <laughs> it's really funny because they're like best friendness is like the most obsessive, intimate like best friendness. Aww. And like the guy, the Grace Wood is his name. Um, he like has he he thinks that she died and didn't know that she was trans and, like, has just fallen apart and is, like, a disaster. And so the whole idea is, like, maybe she can help him be better, but she doesn't want to because it hurts and da-da-da. So they're totally gonna fuck because that's what's gonna happen. And they're, like, super into each other and attracted to each other. And now they have this whole new relationship. But I think uh, I have no idea how it'll play out, and I'm curious. But so far, I'm, like, cool. Fascinating. Like, dope, you know?
1: What, what is yeah. it called again?
0: A Lady for a Duke by Alexis Hall.
1: I'm going to send it to my, to my co-host, Rose, who is obsessed with, like, period dramas like that. Um, and also, I have to say, the conceit is very reminiscent of the single most important, most formative cultural object of my childhood, which was Ugly Betty. And I was, Oh
0: yeah. And I, I was, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, problematic as it was, it, it literally made me who I am today. Um, and I, and Alexis Mead does fake her own death and come back mm. and she's like, I'm back. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> very like, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
1: okay. I might, I, I would love to read it. Great, right? Yeah.
0: Again, like representationally, it feels really important, right? Like how, like that there are trans narratives in mainstream romance novels, mm-hmm. I think is really important. So like, I'm sort of like willing to read it, even though I don't like Victorian stuff, because I think that that's interesting and important mm-hmm. and good. Um, and also like, it's good. Like I'm enjoying it. It's, you know, so yeah, if y'all want to dip your toe into uh romance, follow, follow along. Yes. Okay.
1: <laughs>
2: Uh, Well, that is our show for today. Now I'm like, why am I not? Why do I have to go to work later? I don't want (laughs) to do that. I want to read a bodice ripper. But Fran, thank you so much for joining us. Tell our audience where they can listen to your podcast, where they can learn more about you.
1: Yes, before I rip off my own bodice here, um, (laughs) you can follow me at Fran Squishko on all social media or just search my name, Fran Torado, and you should be able to find it. And listen to my podcast, Like a Virgin, or my other podcast, Food for Thought. Um, Yeah, and, uh, you know, go subscribe to all the things and consume what I I put out there because there's a lot of it. I'm sorry.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and you can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on all the things.
2: I'm Kat Spada, and you can find me at Kat underscore EX underscore Machina on Twitter. And please be sure to follow Feminist Frequency at FemFreak.
0: If you are a Patreon subscriber, be sure to stick around for the bonus episode with our guest, friend Toronto. If you like our show, please help other people find it. Subscribe,
2: rate, and comment on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. listening. We're going to work it out. <laughs> We're going to get there. We will
0: get there. It'll be great.